You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Fall. I'm Oak. And Danny's Irish Alfield Road. Now we have been joined by another amazing guest. Now I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Because as soon as you start speaking, everybody will know your voice. So I, I think it's going to be far better coming from you than me. So I'm going to go straight into my first question, which is just tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, what you do. Hi, my name's George Sefton, known universally as the voice of Anfield. Uh, born and bred Scouser. And uh, I'm just coming off the end of my 50th season as the stadium announcer at Anfield which gets more weird the more you say that, 50 years, blimey. It's been a funny old season, I think that's fair to say. Uh, It's much stranger than the previous 49, and at the moment I'm looking forward to number 51, so we might have human beings in the ground, that sort of thing. But um, I I said to a few people, the empty stadium is starting to get to me now. Mm. Uh, It wasn't a while ago, it was quite... You know, in a strange way, it's quite relaxing not having to uh, battle your way through the playlist and uh, the running order and all that sort of thing and late team changes and penalty shootouts at our time. But um, now it's just starting to get me down. It's, it's very weird on a match day. You watch match on the TV. You can hear the crowd noises in the background. Uh, the stands are all got banners covering all the seats. It's quite reasonable, but when you're in there, it's so quiet. It's just unbelievable. And as I say, it's just starting to uh, drive me to lally. At least I think that's what's driving me to lally. <laughs> it, uh, I'm going to lally anyway. Uh, do you know what, George? Like, and, and I know I'll be speaking for a lot of people. The, the second you start speaking... It just it brings back memories for me of of being in Anfield, of 
listening to that stadium announcement. And as I said, it's it's everything that goes with it. So I I totally understand where you're coming from. Is yeah. that when I think of of your voice, when I think of you announcing the team sheet and and being there, it reminds me of being in the cop, being surrounded by people, the cheers every time someone's name is mentioned on that team sheet. So for you, it must just be it must be so so strange. We talk about the players find it weird not playing in front of fans yeah. but it must just be so strange for you having to do that announcing and the just the silence that follows well, it yeah i've got very little to do at the moment um mainly because uh some bright spark decided that while they're playing behind closed doors they are going to use um music that the players have selected so i'm somebody turns up every week with a laptop uh full of uh, well, how do I phrase it? The music you'd probably expect to hear at four o'clock in the morning in a nightclub <laughs> when you'd uh, you'd had too much to drink or you were sniffing something you shouldn't be, and it's <laughs> it's really getting, that's driving me mad. Um, but as to say, it, it's it's great. I basically get paid for watching the TV at the moment because I'm sitting in my room. Um, the the VAR guy. Uh, the guy who operates the screen, not the one who makes the decision, he sits in my room. So obviously, for social distancing reasons, I have to get out of the way while he's in there, uh, vice versa. Um, and because I'm out of the way, Peter McDowell has to do the goal announcements and the substitution. So, uh, And obviously, the next home game after Villa will be a Champions League game. So the uh, the timings are very strange for one of them, so I'll have a lot of input next Wednesday. Mm. But as I say, apart from that, I'm, it's it's very weird. Although I do say to people, at least twice a season, I get the steward who collars me, won't let me go in the uh, the ground, and they say you can't go in there. Uh, you can't go down that corridor. You can't go through that gate. <laughs> and I'll turn all hoity-toity. I'll look and say, <clears throat> I think you'll find I can. <laughs> <laughs> and then when they're looking at me, um, I'll just clear my throat and say, there'll be two minutes of added time. Two <laughs> minutes. At that point, they go, oh, sorry, mate. And I have to say, sorry to put in there, George. When I call, obviously, before we do any big interview, yeah. um, I, I, Danny's the like producer, and he does all the technical stuff. He's, he's the brains behind the operation. I'm just yeah. a mouth. So I mean, <laughs> I've been on the phone to Neil Meller. I've been on the phone to Chris Kirk and Howard Gale, and uh, it was surreal. But when I called you up last week, George, just before we yeah. got this interview sorted, it was like, "Hello, George." I was like, "I think I got your voicemail first, and it was just one of those moments where, <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly, like." It's just a moment, like Danny described being in the cop and stuff and, and hearing that yeah. voice and the way you've just done it two minutes at a time. It's a moment that, what you, what you pro I don't know if you realise this, George, um, and I'll pass it back on to Danny in a wee while. What, what I don't think you realise is that your voice has such an impact on so many people's lives, our generation of football, uh, football fans and fans before us. It's like, it's nostalgia. It's something that you can't yeah. create. And that's you right here, right now. It's... Well in, yeah, because of your age, you've grown up never hearing anybody else on the PA. Yeah. And a few people have said to me, my voice is like a, a warm blanket, which is, <laughs> that's nice. But the fact is, I'm part of the, at least my voice is part of the match day experience. 
So, yeah. you know, you go in the, the cup, you can smell the food, you can hear my voice, you recognize the music, and all the, the whole the whole thing is, is a package. Uh, I know there were pe- people over the years who really, really didn't think I was a real person. Do you, you remember that program? Uh, was it Max Headroom on TV years ago? And he, it was a, he was a computer-generated Android of some yeah. description. And people think I'm like that, and they get shocked when they realize I'm actually a human being. It's amazing how many people talk to me about music, and they, they use the expression, oh, at Anfield, they play this, and I said, no, it's not they, it's me. I played that. Yeah. Me. I, you know, <laughs> put the CD in the slot, press the button. It's not they. It's not sort of happening automatically. And the other thing I've said over the years that um, people who've heard me before they see me get fright because I don't look anything like I sound. I've got an awful lot of disappointed women all over Liverpool, <laughs> believe me. Uh, you know, they turn up expecting um, <laughs> Tom Cruise and they get Mr. Blobby. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's it's, uh, it's something I've got used to over the years. And I, I say it's the only thing I've got. Well, I'm, I'm getting to an age now. I've, I've not got a lot going for me. I've still got my hair, mostly. I've still got my marbles, mostly. And uh, the voice is still here, touch wood. Every time I cough and splutter, if I wake up in the morning with a cough, I worry in case the voice is going to disappear. Because when that goes, I'm finished. <laughs> It's do you know what it's it's so interesting just listening to you, George, and listening about your story. And I want to delve a little bit more into it because you touched on the fact there that you said about the fact that that your voice and even when we think about Liverpool, we think about the whole experience. We think about the song. We think about you'll never walk alone. We think about your voice announcing the team sheet. But as you said, that's that's all we've grown up with. What was what's your experience of growing up as a Liverpool fan being, and how did you end up in the job that you're in now? <laughs> um, first things first, people don't believe me, but I was brought up as a red because in my parents' generation, whether you were red or blue in the city depended on your religion. It just it was as bad as Glasgow ever was, but it, obviously it's died out here, thank God. But um, in Glasgow, it's still, you know, contentious. Yeah. Um, I, that, without boring you all day, my mum and dad had me when they were both in their very late 30s uh, because, you know, they, they got married five years before the war, didn't have me till after the war. I, I, I appeared nine months after the VE night party and, in our streets, apparently, that's another <laughs> story. So, my mum and dad, as I say, they were getting, you know, they were old to be having kids, but they were both the youngest children of the big families. And in both cases, there was a gap between them and their next sibling up, right? So, the, what that meant was that my, my dad. Uh, I mean, he had, a, he had a trial at Liverpool 98 years ago, my dad. That's an awful long time. But his family, who, we, who brought him up, they were all born in the 1800s. Hmm. You know, this is my grandparents we're talking about. Yeah. And, um, 
And in those days, there was no ifs, buts, or maybes. If you, you were, uh, were a Catholic, you supported Everton. And if you weren't, you supported Liverpool. There was no, you know, it wasn't the quality of the football, the stadium, you know, the pies in the uh, in the cafe, whatever. That was it. So I was, I was never going to be anything else other than than a red. And luckily for me, I started going as a fan uh, about a month after Bill Shankly joined, which was so I. My time was perfect. You know, I started going when the good times came. Because yeah. Liverpool were in the second division. And they were for, what, two years after I started going. So I was really lucky. And the other thing I was lucky with was the fact that when they got promoted to the old first division, uh, the as far as I'm aware, that was when the Football League said, look, you're in the big time now. You need a proper... Tannoy system in the stadium because they didn't have one before that. Mm. Um, you know, the, again, your your parents would tell you there was a um, at the end of the game there was a couple of guys that come round with a, a billboard with Everton score on it. You know, sometimes they'll come round with a billboard advertising a big fight coming up at Liverpool Stadium, mm. something like that. And there was no music except once in a while where yeah. We had a pipe band came and played before the game, and I think the cop hated them because they, they for some reason, they always seemed to turn up when we lost, so they, they got biggie. <laughs> and then when I came along, you know, all of a sudden, we've got a proper PA system, got a big, big crowd, and we've got the Beatles, and we've got Jerry and the Pacemakers, the whole shooting match for a, a short period in the middle of the, the 60s. Liverpool was the centre of the universe. England won the World Cup. Uh, Liverpool won the league. Everton won the FA Cup. Um, the Beatles were conquering the world. Jenny was doing the same. The Searchers, the Undertakers, um, all the way down. And before that, it wasn't something that, I mean, it didn't play music at a football match. People in those days would think it was really weird what goes on now because during normal times, I played two hours of music before every game. Um, and that just didn't happen. But I've, I've come along when this is all happening. And I'm basically, I'm jumped on the back of it. I'm, I'm uh, getting the rewards after all these years, yeah, because I've, I'm the one who's put it all together for your generation anyway. Mm. George, so how 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 does the conversation come? How did you go from being a fan in, in the stands to actually being yeah. the announcer? Okay, well, um, when they first got the Tannoy system in, there was a guy called Stuart Bateman doing it. Uh, good bloke, he was getting on a bit. He retired in the the late sixties, but he was the one who introduced in a war flow. Um, Alan Jackson, who late, later went on to be on Radio Merseyside, took over. Did a cracking job. But then Alan was desperate to get into radio at the time. He was just a mobile DJ or whatever. And he was offered a six-month contract on the Isle of Man. Uh, and he said to the club, look, I'm going to take a sabbatical. Uh, I'll leave somebody I know in charge 
while I'm away and he'll he's he'll hold the fort till I finish this six months. But I've got to do this contract contract in the Isle of Man because it's my foothold into radio. So that's how he went off. But the guy who stood in for him really wasn't up to much. He did he was prone to making silly mistakes. Uh, in those days, you could play records the wrong speed in those days on good old vinyl. Um, he struggled to pronounce some of the English names, I mind the foreign ones. And um, his timing wasn't right. You know, he did he, he put he did some silly things. I mean, um, I was there one day. Tommy Smith, I think, was just stepping up to take a penalty when the, the PA came on. You know, we'll miss the Fred Logs. Please go move his car. It's causing <laughs> an obstruction, that sort of thing. And one night in April 1970, I was at Anfield. I was standing in the old paddock uh, with my wife, and this guy made a bloomer. And I said to my wife, well, that's embarrassing. And she looked at me deadpan and said, it's all right for you standing down here, but you couldn't do any better. And I, I was like a red rag to a bull. And I went home, and I, I, I typed out, yeah, typewriter, that shows you how long ago it was, uh, a long letter to Peter Robinson, who was in charge then. And basically it boiled down to, dear sir, there's a job I can do that. And apparently my letter landed on his desk just at the same time they decided to give this fellow the push uh, at the end of season 70-71. And um, he, he decided I could write a good letter. It sounded quite sort of calm and collected. And he got me in uh, to have a chat, basically to see if I didn't have two heads and whether I might keep my head in a crisis, that sort of thing and uh, decided to give me a trial. And 50 years later, the trial's still going on. Now, nobody's ever said, oh, you got the job. No, it's yours, mate. Yeah. The rest is history. <laughs> so, uh, don't try this at home, folks. <laughs> it's, it's just so strange. Like, it's just such an amazing, obviously, coincidence that it, that it would happen and it would drop at that time yeah. and stuff. Obviously, it's all meant to be. And Oh, like, that's, that's the phrase I keep using. It just... Um, it, it's... It's amazing what I, I found myself. If you told me 50 years ago what I'd be doing now, I would have said you were crackers. Mm. But then you know, I've discovered that life's like that. I, um, a couple of years ago, I got invited to the premiere of uh, the film about Bill Shankly, Shankly, Nature's Fire. Oh, you must have seen it. Yeah. Uh, the the um, premiere in Liverpool was at the Philharmonic Hall, and I turned up there. Uh, uh, with my son, and I said to him at one stage, about um, 60 years ago, I was sat in this theatre uh, at the school speech day, and a couple of rows down with two lads called George Harrison and Paul McCartney, and over there was a bloke called Peter Sissons, and you know, a couple of other people like that, and I said, if you told us all then what would be happening now, and if you told me I'd be sitting here in the Philharmonic Hall watching myself in a full-length movie on the big screen, I would have said, you're snorting something. You know, I really would never have thought, but that's the way life goes. And uh, it just, 
you know, it, it, things all fall into place somewhere. I mean, you know, the Beatles, the classic example, of just pure good luck that George and Paul went to school together. Mm. Uh, it's pure good luck they, they happened to live near uh, that church in Chilwell where they met John Lennon. And the whole thing, you know, the, the fact that the technology at the time could cope with the, the pure good luck that somebody walked into Brian Epstein's shop and asked for a Beatles record before they'd started making them in England. These things are, you know, happen for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, fully agree. And it's a bit deep now. I know it is a very deep conversation, <laughs> but it's good. And it's probably a good segue into the next section is that you then take on this job, the mm-hmm. a job that you've, you've seen done as a fan, uh, you, you get you get invited to come and do this trial and to test it out, and then things obviously start to progress. You said about the Beatles obviously being yeah. huge in Liverpool at the time. What made um, Liverpool as a club go with Jerry and the Pacemakers as the the main song for Liverpool? Not go with a Beatles song with, with how big they were at the time. Yeah, well, the, the Beatles songs came and went, but. Uh, the guy I was talking about before, Stuart Bateman, he used to go and um, to a local shop and get the top 10 records every week, hmm. vinyl records, and play them. And when they fell out the top 10, he stopped playing them. But apparently, uh, when they stopped playing, you never walk alone. Because obviously, it went straight into the top 10 at number one in October 63. Hmm. Uh, when it fell out the top 10, uh, he stopped playing it. But then he got all these people chasing him. We like that. Play it again. Don't stop playing that song. And that was it. You know, it in the end, you know, it it became a it took on a life of its own. It still has it. Um, if you know, if I didn't play you never walk alone um, one week, you'd find me hanging from a lamppost down the road within half an hour of the final whistle. It's just it's just part of the experience. It's mm. It's taken on a life of its own. There's a wonderful film, um, a German film of all things, which, again, by coincidence, I took a big part in. Me, Jerry, and uh, Jürgen. Quite, that was another surreal experience. But it traces the history of no, You Never Walk Alone. And if, I, if you ask people, um, most people will say, if I said to you, where did it come from? You'd say, oh, that musical carousel. Um, and if you're a bit older than you put yourself, you have Carousel 1948. And it's not that at all. That the song came from Carousel, but Carousel came from a play that was written 40 years before that. Mm. The guy who wrote the play uh, left Germany when uh, the Nazis took over, went to New York, and... Uh, he was offered a lot of money for the rights to this play, and he said, no, go away, it's mine. You know, it's done well. And then after the war, he was on his uppers. He had no money. Somebody came back to him and said, we'd still like to buy the rights of that play. And he he, he had no choice then but to take the money. Uh, the two guys were called Rogers and Hammerstein. They wrote Carousel, all the songs, including You Know Walk Alone. And then... It went on from there, and obviously it uh, it was in the musical theatre for years. Then Jerry um, went to see Carousel at the Pictures one day, 
said, I like that song. And he started playing it in his act. And the rest of the band thought he'd gone crackers, but he, he liked it so much he played it. And he kept playing it. And then when he was recording um, his third uh, single release, he said to Epi, I'd like to put You Know Walk Alone out as a, um, my next single. And they all said he was crackers. And he said, no, I, I love it. I finished my act with it every night. I'd like to put it out as the third single. And they, there was a big argument. In the end, Jenny won out. And, of course, it came out straight to number one. And he was the first artist to have three consecutive number ones from his first three releases. And, as I say, since then, it's taken on a, a life of its own. There's so many clubs all over the world who sing it. Um, you use it all over Europe, and you know, I think the couple in South America. But I know I've been I've been to Holland, you know, on the strength of the the song just to you know, take part in. Um, uh, it was a new uh, new stadium in Enschede, far end of Holland. They sing "You Never Walk Alone" before every game. Uh, they wanted Jelly to go out there, but he was touring in Australia at the time, so I got the call, and um, it was amazing to listen to it. Obviously, Celtic up the other side of the border, um, Italian clubs, a couple of couple of others across Europe, and the the, the song even now, if you, if I hear it coming on the radio, the hers go up on the back of my neck. It's uh, yeah. it's fantastic, and. And the sad thing is now, of course, it's Jerry's memorial. I said when he died, we'd never forget him because as long as football's being played at Enfield, he'll be singing. Yeah, and do you know what? It's it is it's it really has, and I think you you really summed it up well in saying that it's taken on this this life of its own. I was yeah. I was out in India a few years ago and um, was out there with work and and was spending time out there in India and. We just to give a real side note, random. We we ended up playing this football match. It was just on a field. There was a snake on the field when we started the game and stuff like this. It was so random. Um, just out in this. And says your runners was that. <laughs> it wasn't that big a snake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we we were playing just in the middle of a remote jungle, just playing yeah. this game with these tribal Indian people over in northeast India, and all these people came out of their houses to come and watch, and because they knew that I was from Liverpool. They all started singing "You'll Never Walk Alone." Didn't have a clue what the wording was. Didn't know what yeah. it meant because it wasn't yeah. their tribal language, but knew it off by heart and the passion that they sang it with. Yeah. And as you said, it's just because it is just—it's taken on this entity that is just is just synonymous now with with Liverpool and with yeah. specifically the football club. And as you said, I don't think Jerry will ever be forgotten, um, no, no. because I don't think that tune will will ever die. And. The last question I want to ask you, there's so much we could talk about here in terms of going through. You, you've spoke about the religious context of football, which which over here on the island of Ireland we know we know too well about. Um, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. We, we've gone through about that, talked about obviously your life as, as coming into your job as the announcement and the impact that that's had in the song. The last question I want to ask you is, through your years of doing this job, playing that song, being at Anfield, seeing the development, where do you think, can you name a specific game that you think that song has had the biggest impact on? You'll have seen many a game over a year, but what what has been your sort of best 
game that you've seen that you feel that, that the crowd you'll never have won has impacted? That's a good question. There's a few that it's been attached to. I mean, I'm thinking Barcelona, but the, on the night of the Barcelona game 2019, it was the singing at the end that made the impact on people worldwide. But um, there's been a few times when, I mean, just after Hillsborough, when we were playing, it, it took on a new meaning. Um, I'm thinking back to 2005, the semi-final in the Champions League against Chelsea. Mm. That night, you know, I just went and pumped up the volume for everything. And you'd never walk alone that night. It was fantastic. And if you look on YouTube, I think if you Google the best ever rendition, uh, that, that night comes up. But that night, there was another one we played it twice. Uh, first in the normal slot at the end, and then right on the final whistle. And the the way the crowd took it, took over that, they were just so pleased. Obviously, we were pleased to see uh, Mourinho and Chelsea off, but we were, we'd been a long time not being in a Champions League final, and that was our gateway back to where we belong after, you know, we'd been missing so long after Heisel. And, uh, the row that night was amazing. If you, I say, if you look on YouTube, one of the um, videos it shows uh, the last few minutes of the game, and that uh, if you remember, there's one point where the fourth official at the end held up the board with six on, and I was standing there looking at you, know, hearing at him, thinking I've gone crazy. It can't be six minutes at a time, but it was. And then you can see Rafa looking up and saying to his uh, right-hand man, what did George just say? Six minutes. And then further down, Jose is looking up, six minutes. And he's hanging his, his crowd on. And then, as I say, at the end, I banged on you and never walk alone. And I, I, at some point, I gave a little speech, like a Nuremberg rally. I was, I'd lost it by then. So that was really far and away the best atmosphere I'd ever experienced, you know, in all the years of going to the not just working there, but as a fan. It was incredible. And uh, that's, that's the one that sticks in my mind now. Probably will. Obviously, as you say, the, where the squad joined in after the Barcelona match was was fantastic but um that, that was on a par yeah and i remember that I, I, yeah i remember singing it myself and it was just the as you say it was a hard question because i've sort of thrown it at you there last minute um and there's so many you could choose but i just remember the the relief of that situation of getting through and just yeah. this year it felt like people were just singing it it was like they were just letting everything go at that yeah. time that we got through um and obviously it went on to, to one of the best moments in, in Liverpool's recent history. Now, as I said, we could go on for ages, but I want to give you a bit of a chance to catch your breath, George. So we're going to have a little break, uh, and then we're going to come back, and you're going to tell us a little bit uh, about your book uh, and a little bit about a few other things that we're going to talk about that Ammo is going to bring to you. So thank yeah. you all so much for listening to... Ammo and Danny's Irish Anfield Road. more great shows or join the team at sport-social.co.uk 
All right, folks, welcome back to Ammo. And Danny's Irish Anfield Road. Well, 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 I mean, um, that was fascinating. Um, we have to pinch ourselves with the guests that we've got sometimes, Danny, and as I say, just listen to yourself there, George, and the story of how you become, you know, the voice of Anfield. So that's you need to get out more. Something. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, hey, w- w- one thing that I've uh, I've noticed, and it's very apparent in this, in this conversation, I'm 30 years of age, Danny's just a couple of years older than me. And let's say, George, you're, you're maybe a couple of years older than that, but you've got three scouts on a, on a call here. And yeah. that, that that scout's wit, that scout's band, whatever you want to call it, it's very apparent in you, George. And it's it's great to see that. Me and Danny get that from our fathers and our grandfathers and generations mm. down the line. There's something about Liverpool, the city, and about scouts in general that people love. And I'm sitting here listening to you, George, now, and I'm chat, I chat to Danny every single week. Being on the island of Ireland, I mean, Danny, we, we miss that sometimes. So to get you on now, it's brilliant to hear that kind of the scout wit. So thank you for that. But what we're going to talk about now is the football side of things. So you're a huge football fan. We're all huge football fans. Anyone listening to this is a huge football fan. You've seen some teams. You've seen from Daglish to Gerrard to Suarez to Salah. Um, I've got a couple of fans' questions coming come up in a wee while. But tell me, who are your probably top couple players that you've watched witnessed over the years and why? Well, I always say to people when they ask me to pick my favourite player, I've got three kids. You wouldn't expect me to pick my favourite out of them. It's much the same. Um, but when push comes to shove, Kenny <laughs> is you know, the business. It, not just because of you know it's what he did on the pitch, but Everything in his story. I mean, going back to when he came to uh, Anfield, he, we just got shut of Kevin Keegan. I thought the end of the world had come. And Bob Paisley goes up to Glasgow with his checkbook, paying, what, 400,000 quid for Kenny. And um, he was, he, he just couldn't have had a better replacement. And over the years, you know, the things he's done, I know. Just before lockdown last year, I did um, uh, an interview for a German TV company and they were talking about managers and they, they were talking about Jürgen and Shanks. And I said, yeah, Jürgen's the only manager we've had who could hold a candle to Bill Shanks. And I went on, I've got the, uh, an awful lot of time for Jürgen Klopp. Then I got home and I said to my wife, I just realised we're talking about managers, and I never mentioned Kenny. But then, Kenny, he's in a, a, a league of his own. He's not just as a manager. He won trophies as a manager. He won a lot of trophies as a player. And then, forget all that, he went off and managed another club to the league championship. And while during the Hillsborough period, what he did for this place was unbelievable. And now he's a club ambassador. He's a nice little realm. It, it just couldn't get any more. So basically, Kenny is in a little box all on his own. Kenny is in the Kenny box. He's, you know, he's such a wonderful bloke. And he's, he's been so good to me over the years, you know, that signed a few things and uh, favours like that. And, then, you know, and then, of course, he's written the foreword to the book, which is just amazing um, and before that 10 years ago when I turned 65 I was out uh, having a meal with my family and my, 
my phone started going ping, ping, ping. And I was trying not to be rude and look, but then I was getting messages saying, wasn't it great what Kenny said about you on the telly? And I thought, what they're going on about? When I got home, uh, I had a look. It was on LCTV, and he used to have a... It was when he was manager, and Claire Rourke used to go and do a weekly interview with him. And this yes. day, she'd done her interview, and she said, one last thing, have you got a message for George Sefton, who turned 65 today? And he said, yeah, George is part of the history and traditions of this club. And it'd be more relevant if he left than if I left. And I just sat there, watched this, and then I ran it through again. Then I called my wife in and I said, just watch this. And I just wow. couldn't believe it. And I, and I said to my wife, you can take me outside, shoot me now. That's as good as it gets. And of course, you know, um, I was I was completely gobsmacked. You know, obviously I've got to know him a bit better since. And I, um, uh, when when it came to the book, there was only one person I'd really want to to write the forward. And of course, he said yes without hesitation. And uh, it's you know it's worth buying the book just for the, his forward. Never mind, he's great. Apart from Kenny, obviously you've got your superstars, Stephen Gerrard. In our generation, okay. that's our he's, generation. Captain yeah, fantastic. he's he's um, he's going to be a bigger figure in the history of Liverpool as Kenny is now. I'm sure he is. Uh, I go back to Billy Little. I just only saw him play once or twice because when I started uh, going, he was just on the verge of retiring, which was sad. But over the years, we had some. Wonderful, wonderful players. Um, I spoke to somebody last night who said Luis Suarez was the best he'd ever seen in a red shirt. I doubt that. He's a cracking goal scorer. But he had so many um, flaws, from put it that way. You know, yeah. he, he <laughs> was, yeah. uh, it was frightening. I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't employ him now. No. Um, Would you not take him back, George? Tom, no. Eh? You're not taking back. So there's rumours that Suarez might come back at the end of the yeah, season. Yeah, there's rumours. Well, I'm not in charge of that, thank God. But uh, I mean, I'd, if he comes back and scores a few goals for a couple of years, great. But if somebody over in Boston produces a cheque for 200 million and we buy Harland, I'd be a lot more pleased. <laughs> yeah. I've, um, I've, I've said to a few people, if they're all saying he's going to City, but I'm thinking one thing they're forgetting. He's a Norwegian. Norwegians love Liverpool. Mm. And I, I'm thinking, you know, if we can make some sort of deal up, if, if we get Haaland, we, we'll win the league. We, in fact, we will win everything for five years to come. But that's, <laughs> again, that's in the future. Yeah. Um, again, we go back. Xavi Alonso, wonderful player, absolute treat to watch. Yeah. But when people say, put your first 11 together, I said, it's impossible. You've got to have Kenny. If you have Kenny, you've got to have Rushy. Mm. And if you get those two, what happens to Mane and Firmino and Salah? <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And then that's so, so true. Before that, you know, Keegan and Toshak. So there we are. We haven't start, haven't got past the centre forward yet. <laughs> what eleven players? You, you go, go through the back. I mean, I used to love watching 
uh, Mark Lawrence and Alan Hansen playing together. Absolute belters. <laughs> but nobody, but nobody is in the same league as um, Virgil van Dijk. He's the best centre-back I've ever seen anywhere playing for anybody. Yeah, so you've got to have him. Who do you have alongside? I plumped for Jamie Carragher because Jamie... There you go. Absolute you know, storm in centre-back. And he... You know, he put his body on the line more than once, Jamie. His, you know, his attitude, his will to win is just extraordinary. But they, when you do that, so you've got those two in the middle. You go, but what happened to Phil Thompson and Emily News? I couldn't leave Emily News out of anything. I, mean, <laughs> I was lucky enough to see his entire career at, at Liverpool. And, you know, he was a fantastic player, again, Put his body, you know, he'd run through a brick wall if Bill Shackley asked him to, without hesitation. And um, um, tell me this, George. So you've, you've got we've gone through some 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 list of players there, and it, bring, it brings yeah. back to sort of history. So this is kind of a question from myself before we go to a couple of um, listener questions, and we'll obviously talk about your book, which I'm sure a lot of people are eagerly anticipating. So, George, you, you mentioned in the first part of the interview, and I've actually, I've actually witnessed this. First hand, um, you're you're in such a, a, a I say privileged position, but you've earned that you've earned that position. But you're in a position where within a football club, someone that's not a particular player or a manager, but can still be considered a legend of the club. You're in that kind of position that not not many people have. And obviously, Liverpool is full of traditions. But you mentioned yeah. there before you, you, you've you've been stopped by stewards before. Now, obviously, they don't know and stuff like that. But see mm-hmm. that your role at the football club, George. Tell me, so I'm asking this personally. Tell me like a little inside story, something that like we would never think. I personally, just to give you a background, is I personally used to work at Anfield. I worked at Anfield for three years, and I worked in the VIP boxes. So I've seen certain things go on that you maybe people wouldn't have a clue about. You know, yeah. Carragher come down and, you know, a few, let's say, famous figures in Liverpool would be, be hovering about those um, yeah. places. So yourself, you're on a, a, a side where you have to pressure managing or, or playing or like that, but everyone knows you. So does that come with flaws or is it just an absolute honour? It's it's an absolute honour to be considered. I mean, if you look at this this red poster on the wall behind me, um, it's um, called Pitch Invasion. And it's layout of the football pitch. And all over the pitch are the names of players going back quite a way. And their names are bigger the more they play for the club. Um, all the way through. Round the edge of the pitch, uh, all the managers going back to Shankly's time. And then there's one further line out there's one name and that's me and I said how the hell I got in there I still don't understand you know that that just spooked me out for weeks there but as I say it's weird at the club I'm um, you know there are times when I go around the bend I mean you were talking about Istanbul I wasn't in Istanbul and you know um, the last uh, no, the last European final I actually went to was Athens in 2007. But because of all the messing I had in 2005 trying to get to Istanbul, I didn't even bother asking the club for a ticket. My son and I went on our own, went to Bulgaria, flew across to Athens for the game, stayed overnight and came back again. 
And but I know people assume a lot of things. Well, over the years, people assume three things. Uh, first thing, I'm bosom pals with the manager. Nope. Second thing, I get a hundred grand a week like some of the players. Still no. And third, I get five hundred free tickets for every game. I wish. <laughs> I really wish it just doesn't work out like that. I'm still, um, people say, oh, well, you're on the staff. I said, no, I'm not. I'm casual labour. It says on the, the chitty I get every after every match, George Sefton, casual steward, I think that. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, oh, class, casual safety steward, I think is my title on the. And, wow. Um, it, it's, it, it's insane. I know when. Uh, I used to get letters from the club when they were, you know, used to send the pay slips and things. My postman used to fall about laughing every time there'd be a, you know, window envelope with George Sefton brackets casual, close brackets on it. And it, it's it's the way the system is. I always say Liverpool, the club, it's like the rings of Saturn. You know, the further the further out you go, the less involved you are in the middle. And I'm. In one of the outer rings, somewhere I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I know what I can and cannot do. I mean, um, in theory, I'm not allowed in the main stand because my accreditation badge only lets me into the Kenny Dalglish and up to my room. Um, it's just it's yeah. Clever. I mean, I, I remember working at Anfield, and um, I'll never ever forget this. And I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm gonna say it now, and this is probably. I probably shouldn't say this just to people face to face, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to let the story slip. And uh, now that you've said that, when I worked at Anfield, we had the, I don't know if it's the honour or privilege, it was when Rafa was manager. And uh, we used to do like the tours. Yeah. And he, they always have a legend, you know, it was usually John Mulvey or Phil Neal or something like that. Yeah. But we, we had, we, we were told to go and clean Rafa Benitez's Rafa Benitez office, me and a cleaner. Yeah. And we, uh, we went into Rafa Benitez. This is me. 18, 19 years of age, George, in Rafa Benitez's office. And there's three or four letters on his uh, on his desk. And I'm like, I'm not going to lie. I picked one up and looked at it. And I, I kind of, excuse excuse the listeners on Strabane Radio Online at 9am and Sports Rain Radio at 11 o'clock, but I shit myself because I was like, I shouldn't be holding it. And I put it back down straight away. But that's how close. And I, and I knew that I shouldn't have been there. It was like the, my manager was in, or my boss was in there cleaning. And I was yeah. you're like, wow, this is something that... I shouldn't really be, I shouldn't be there. So I can understand where you're, you, you keep it separate. You, you know where you are. But a quick oh, question yeah. before we go into viewers' questions in your book. Do the players know you, George? So say, say for argument's sake, say Gerard Landers at Anfield, would he know who you are or? Oh, not? yes. I mean, the likes of him, great. Yeah, but they, this current crop, if they all walked in here now, I think one or two of them might know who I am. I know Trent follows me on Twitter. Um. <laughs> I suspect a few of the others recognise my voice. That's as far as it goes. Mm -hmm. um, it's the way the club is now since, you know, the last couple of takeovers. It's divided into sections. I mean, you know, there's, I'm going to say Melwood. It's not even Melwood anymore. Yeah. It's the Axe Training Centre up in Kirby. Then there's some offices at Anfield. There's a huge office block downtown. And everybody's, you know, split up in it. Uh, into their little little worlds. They, the people who run the place are all down in Chapel Street in Liverpool. Yeah. Um, obviously, the players are up in in Kirby. Um, 
this current crop, I just don't ever see them because they 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 brought into Anfield on you know through that big archway on a coach, and you know the shutters come down behind them, hmm. um, and because I'm over in the Kenny Beach stand, um, I just don't go through that place. Fair enough. You know, at Fair all. Enough. Yeah, you know, I I park. Um, in the in the VIP car park now, which is nice. Yeah, um, Judge, I've but, seen you. I've seen you leaving Anfield. Yeah. And I was only a couple of maybe the real diehards that kind of knew you was, and I was yeah. I was probably 15, 16. I was like, oh my god, that's that's the voice of Anfield. You know, you know. I actually said that to myself before. You know, your book was named that, yeah. and and a few people knew you was, but you, you did kind of sneak out. And I think if, if I remember correctly, I think it was uh, Ryan Babble come out just after you. Yeah. And everyone started scattering over to Ryan Babble then. And it was, yeah. he kind of snuck away. I did see you. It was, it was no, well, I mean, I had um, major problems with my feet a couple of years ago. And I was, uh, actually, it's five years. When the main stand was open, um, it was weird because uh, for one day, I was a VIP. I was invited to the opening and lunch in the boardroom, the whole shooting match was quite fantastic and then on the way out of the ground back to my car um, I said to um, I bumped into the stadium manager and said I haven't got my pass to get in for the match tomorrow against Leicester he said oh I'm sorry it's on my uh, it's on my desk I forgot to bring it I'll leave it by the door for you tomorrow I said right thank you and I said on the other thing what about my car park pass and he said oh it's not me it's uh, Chummy down over there's doing that. So we shouted over. I forgot the guy's name. He wasn't there long. And he said, where's George's car park pass? And the fellow just goes, walked off. And so they'd actually taken my car park pass away and not bothered telling me. And I ended up, I say, I was walking with two sticks at the time. And um, the following day was the first time for about 35, 40 years. I had to get the bus to Anfield. I was fuming. But wow. then um, I started another scheme. I get, I discovered a park by the Walton. I could get a taxi right up to the Shankly Gates and hobble in that way. And then uh, somebody overheard me saying to somebody I was parking in Asda. And um, only known to me, he went on a blazing round with the, the new stadium manager. And the next thing I know, I'd got a, a, a space right opposite the Shankly Gates in the VIP car park. Just well, you, slowly, which was nice. You deserve it, George. Eh? You deserve it, as I say. You deserve it. Well, I don't think so. But the, um, nowadays, I park there, I go straight through the Shankly Gates into the Kenny Dunn leash stand, up in the lift, and into my room. And after the game, I go back the same way. And the last time I went in the main stand um, on that day was three years ago. Um, that was that was weird. It was Elvis Costello turned 65 a couple of years ago. And um, he... His manager phoned me up. Elvis wanted to go to Anfield on the day of his his birthday. And they just discovered his mate who had a box uh, had given it up so he couldn't do that. And he 
He said, can you help? And I said, not really. I'm not in, you know, no privileges. But then uh, I said, there's only one thing to do. I phoned Peter Moore up and said, look, this is what's happening. And Peter, God bless him, he, he sorted it all out. And on the day, Elvis and his manager and his two kids and his wife, Diana, I don't know if you know Elvis's wife, Diana Kroll, huge, you know, I'm a huge fan. Um, I'd met her for the first time, what, uh, nine months previously, she came to her first ever game. Wow. And um, anyway, I, it was all sorted out, So, they, and Peter was brilliant. On the, the day of the um, his birthday, I say Peter Moore treated him um, to everything. They bought him the biggest birthday cake I've ever seen. Front row of the director's box, sat next to Peter Moore and his wife, Debbie. Uh, the, the standard tour, and um, he got a, um, a signed shirt, signed by the whole squad, with Elvis 65 on the back, uh, in a huge frame. And after the game, I went back to my car, um, and my, my son and his wife were here. Uh, they were waiting for me, and they... The um, I, I phoned through to Elvis's manager. I said, Are "You still in the uh, in there talking to Peter?" And he said, "Yeah, we're going to be here for a while yet." And I said, "Well, never mind. I'll see you next time." And then I got just starting the car up, and I got a text message saying, "Diana wants to see you." And I said to my son, "Sorry, tea will be late tonight." And I just blagged my way back in there. I, my Pastor's not let me in there, and I just marched in. Said Peter wants to see me. I went up to the uh, bumped into Virgil on in the lift, which was hilarious. And um, you know, I went in and um, had a chat. And in the end, Elvis and his missus and the rest of them walked back to the car park with me, which was weird because everybody was queuing up for Elvis's autograph, and people were ignoring Diana. You know, she's a much bigger star than he is, you know, over in North America. And um, I was chatting away. I was, I was in Cloud Cuckoo Land. But I'll say that was the last time I was in the main stand. And I, um, I don't know. I'll probably might have the chance again for five years. Let's get into this book of yours. <laughs> 50 years at Anfield. Yeah. This is your book. This is your story. This is your chance to promote and tell everyone. And we have listeners all over the world, George. We have listeners in New Zealand, yeah. America, everywhere. Tell us all about it. Yeah, I I got a call a couple of years ago from Peter Hooten of the farm, who um, said, um, you know, I'd like to buy you a cup of coffee as somebody I want you to meet. And somebody was actually his, uh, his literary agent. And they uh, they said to me, look, you're coming up to 50 years before too long at Anfield. You must have some stories to tell. I said, mm, yeah, I suppose so. And um, anyway, I said, okay, I'll give it a go. And um, we decided to go ahead. And I got stuck into, you know, sounds odd researching, but I had to go through Wikipedia and a lot of my old diaries and emails just to put dates on things. Um, I got stuck into the, the manuscript and 
I was probably one of the few people who benefited from lockdown last year because it coincided with me finishing off the book. Mm. Being introduced like this over Zoom by, um, you know, being introduced to a publisher and then an editor and then all the way down the line. And the, uh, the thing was actually finished. Well, I, the last words in the book are September the 10th. 2020 season 50 let's see what happens um, and um, <laughs> since then with you know the editor has, has been at it it's, it's printed um, there are several thousand of these wandering around and um, it's coming out officially uh, on the 6th of May which is uh, something I'm looking forward to I mean it, the mere fact of getting this in my hand a couple of weeks ago was was quite something, and the the fact that uh, the Saint Kenny's written the um, the forward to it, it, which is gobsmacking on its own, and then I got Elvis to write some what I call sleeve notes, which are basically a second forward. I, I did complain to him that they're actually funnier than the book. Maybe that was a bad idea. How can but we it goes George? Sorry? How, can people get, how can people get hold of this book and well, where can you get it? Uh, it it's on pre-order at the moment on uh, Amazon. Um, I think, without looking at my list, it's it's available you know, all over Europe on Amazon. Uh, it'll be in America in uh, August, I, I believe. And yesterday I got a message from someone in Australia who just bought it on, uh, I think it's iBooks in Australia, it's on pre-order, and mm. you know, all the big bookshops will be having it, Waterstones, W.H. Smiths, and all the little independents, because the, uh, the publishers, Allen and Unwin, are really uh, top, top uh, draw. They're fantastic, because they've, they've got such a well-organized team of salespeople and, and whatever, um, and they've got it all over the place and all sorts of little bookshops. And, of course, the um, the club store. Uh, at the moment, it, it'll be in the club store on the 6th of May. And Brilliant. I'm hoping that it'll go on the club's uh, online store very shortly afterwards, because that way people can you know, buy it anywhere. It's, it's, it's doing well. I mean, the people, uh, a couple of people helped me along the way. Um, Jamie Carragher and Robbie Fowler both put it on their uh, Twitter feeds, and that's 2.7 million people. Um, and you might have seen, <laughs> you might have seen uh, earlier in the week, nice picture of uh, Jürgen holding holding the thing, which and that that did me no harm. Oh, yeah, there's and this is this is my favourite. I must confess. Um, Sam Quack, you know, the, the hockey okay, yeah. gold medalist. Um, <laughs> I, I've got a lot of time for. There's a story, lovely story about Sam Quack in the book, um, which is which is just incredible. You know, the fact that she's bothered to bring it on her Twitter feed and um, and publicise it is, is fantastic. And last but not least. My hit, Diddy David Hamilton. I don't know if you remember him. 
he was um, he's now uh, working for a radio station in Sussex. Well, it's it's gone nationwide now, but he's he's got all the one. He's um, I got to know David a couple of years ago when he was my opposite number at Fulham of all places. Um, and we got in touch and we've been friends of since and he uh, he brought his autobiography out I think it was about eight, nine years ago now. And uh, it turned up here one day. I came home for lunch, it was a little parcel and it was his autobiography and I said to my wife, I hope he signed it. When I opened it, he had signed it. He put a little note that said, see page 129. And when I looked, it was a chapter called The Voice of Anfield. Wow. And I said, this is insane. I mean, he was one of my my big DJ and heroes. He go along with you know, him and um, John Peel, of course. And John Peel was another guy I got to know through football, the sort of person you'd never, ever meet in a million years. I'm, I still talk to his wife and his daughter um, quite a lot. And um, then, let's say, that would be that was this the week. best one. The ah, best yeah, one yeah. of all. I, <laughs> couldn't, I couldn't believe that when I saw it. Not ah. as anyone else, but he's, uh, I think it, my street cred went up quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, we, um, the other day. We use on our social media platforms, and, and speaking of social media platforms, mm. obviously, guys, we'll 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 post links to how you can purchase the book, um, mm. and we'll post many coming in the future. Um, George, all I can say, mate, um, forget football, forget everything else. For me and Danny, it's been an absolute honour and privilege. You, a fascinating guy, like like anything. You want these interviews to go on forever, um, but obviously, we just can't do that. Unfortunately, but hey, listen. Thank you so, so much. And obviously, this talk, we don't want to give too much away that maybe at the end of the season, mm -hmm. um, we'll have you back again. But let's see how that second tie against Real Madrid goes and let's see how things yes. progress um, during the pandemic. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm looking for... Well, uh, what I'm hearing on the news today, I'll never be out of the pandemic. The same with uh, when the third wave comes, it's going to hit people of my age. I thought, that's nice. I thought we were past all that. But apparently... Us old duffers are dispensable, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> oh, don't say that. Don't me. say that. <laughs> well, as I say, George, it's been a privilege and an honour, and thank you so, so, so much. Um, My pleasure. Me and, me and Danny have just we're, we're, we're living all you fear, like as I say, you, what you what that voice means to us and the memories that we have are going to Anfield. Like Danny used to, I let Danny say he used to live around the corner and sneak in, didn't you, Danny? Yeah, yeah, he used to, back in the day when he used to, the gates open 10 minutes before the end of the game, he used to sneak in and watch the end of the matches, so, um, yeah, as I said, I always remember just growing up, listening to your voice, hearing it at the end of the stadiums. And... I thought you said throwing up, listening to my voice, though, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, definitely not, George, definitely not. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's been it's been brilliant, and thank you so, so, so much. So, yeah, we'll definitely get you on again, George. Okay, I'll look forward to that. All the best in, in with, with, with your new book and the success of it. And hey, I know Liverpool fans are passionate, and a lot of people, a lot of great reaction and response for you coming on this podcast. So, I, so. I know people will buy this book, and um, we'll post the links on social media, and we'll promote it as much as we can for you. And please buy it, guys, because if, if anything, just how it has made me realise I need to go and buy it. I need to find out these stories. So thank you so much, George. Thank, thank you. For listening. It's Ammo and Danny's Irish Anfield Road.
This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.